G'day team, it's Matty Guyatt here, your host for the Hard Yards podcast. Thanks so much for listening in, whether this is your fifth episode or your first. If it's your first, you're in for a real treat as I catch up with one of AFL's true superstars. Let's get into it. I hope you enjoy the chat. A massive hello to everybody who is joining us for episode five of The Hard Yards. Today, I don't quite know how to start introducing this man. What a legend of the AFL, 346 games. I think he could have done another four just to crack up the 350, but what a legend. Uh, 305 games with his beloved Hawks and then probably the best 41 games I've seen him play for the Lions, my beloved Lions. So uh, outstanding. Four premierships, three as a captain, two Norm Smith medals. Uh, it is my great pleasure and honour to introduce my fifth guest on the Hard Yards podcast, Luke Hodge. So, welcome, Luke. Yeah, Matty. Uh, thanks for having me, mate. Mate, uh, not only are you a um, Brisbane boy now, or you came up for the last couple of years of your career, but you've decided to hang around for a bit longer. Yeah, we um, we didn't know how long we are going to be up here for. The initial deal was obviously play two years with the Lions. And then we had three boys at that stage. So we thought our oldest, Coop, was nine then. And we thought we'd bring him up here. We'd take him out of school. Um, if they don't like it or we don't like it, we can easily go back. And he's back for back for year seven, um, year six or seven. So um, we thought it would be a good, good adventure for the family. Um, we got up here. We're here for about six months. And my wife said, we're not going back. So I think you can <laughs> sort of see the... Um, the backdrop, the the sunny blue sky. Um, we've had a lot of uh, cold winters in Melbourne, so I think um, people always say that they come up here in winter time. And it's just so nice, and we've found that. And we've now got four boys, um, and they spend every second they can uh, outside. You've created quite the environment in the outside. I've seen a bit of that on your Instagram feed with regards to the backyard and the new addition of the putting green, which I'm most excited about, having caught up with you uh, and met, meeting you last year at uh, Golf Central doing the putting practice with you. So, um, yeah, it's, uh, that backyard's coming along as far as I'm concerned, mate. We just need a driving net in there and we'll be good. <laughs> uh, well, our plan was, was with four boys, um, you've got to find something for them to stop fighting. So we thought we'd do as much in the backyard. So if they are fighting inside, we can kick one of them out or two of them out. But... Um, <laughs> It seems it doesn't matter what we do, they still end up in a fight. So, but I think apparently that's that's what brothers do. Um, but mind um, you, in isolation, they've they've spent a lot more time with each other, um, and they've handled it all right. I've been pretty pretty surprised. Yeah, that's awesome. The um, the couple of things that you just mentioned there, the four boys. So one of the things that comes to mind when you say that you're not going back to Melbourne is the father son rule. Does that mean they're all going to play for the Lions? And uh, <laughs> and the second part of the equation is. Um, no, what about yourself in, in your upbringing? You mentioned apparently that's what what brothers do, fight, fight, fight. So no brothers for you? Uh, I had an older sister who used yep. to beat me up. Um, she's two <laughs> years older than me. And then I think after, after myself, mum and uh, mum and dad had an 11-year break before they had Dylan. Okay. Um, so I think I must have been that much of a brat that they thought no more kids. And then <laughs> as we got a bit older, um, yeah, Dylan, who's, what's he now, 20, 24, he came along and um, did not did not get the opportunity to fight with him too much because I uh, two years later I, I moved to Melbourne after I got drafted. So um, yeah, it's been good having a younger brother, but didn't really grow up with him. So moved to Melbourne from where? Uh, Colac. So we uh, we grew up in town. Uh, it was probably about thirteen thousand people. Which for people up here in Brisbane, it's if you go from Melbourne towards Geelong, you keep going through Geelong about another hour uh, in between pretty much Geelong and Warrnambool. So. 
wasn't much to do down there, mate. You'd obviously go to school and then uh, straight out of school or, or recess and lunchtime, you'd be kicking the footy or playing cricket. And then straight after school, you'd be doing the same with mates. So it was a rotation between footy, basketball and cricket pretty much for all my, uh, all my uh, childhood growing up. And I read recently there was a, there was a moment where you, got, uh, you had a trip to the MCG when I think you were an 11-year-old. And yep. that was that was what made your mind up that uh, you wanted to uh, go ahead and you know chase this dream of being an AFL player. And I believe you were a Richmond fan at the time, but you know now, yep. uh, yeah, how things changed. Yeah, the um, I, I guess I was I was one of those kids who, as I said, I always loved playing sport. But I guess it was just something you did. You're outside, you're playing with your mates, uh, and a country boy. That's that's what you do. You love spending most of the time with with your mates. Uh, it was it was round four. Richmond played North Melbourne. I think everyone who's followed football realised how how good North Melbourne were in the nineties. Yeah. And we 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 I got out of school early. That got me out of school on the Friday because we played uh played North Melbourne and went down there and the traffic was how getting over the the um the Westgate Bridge and we got in there about quarter time and Richmond were flogging him uh, and ended up ended up beating him and I remember sitting there and there was about. 60,000, 70,000 Richmond supporters singing their theme song. And whether you like Richmond or not, you, you love their theme song. It's just catchy. And, yeah, and when sure. I was sitting there with, a, with, a, with, I think I had, was either Matt Richardson or Wayne Campbell's number on my back and sitting there singing that song, I thought geez, it would be a pretty good career to grow, grow up and, and do this uh, for a living. So talk me through what happens next in the, in the life of Luke Hodge. So, you know, you go home from this incredible experience and, you know, for those who haven't been to the G with a with a big crowd in there, it's a it's an absolute must if you're a sports fan, um, whether it's AFL footy or, or cricket, and um, for a one day up, and it's awesome. What happens next for Luke? You go home as an 11 year old. How do you go about the plan, or what's the plan for you to make it into the AFL? Uh, I don't think when you're a kid, I don't think there was a plan. It was it was more oh, I want to play footy, and you didn't mm-hmm. really know how to get there. It was just go home and. And I was pretty lucky that in the country, yeah, they had dad would get home from work and I'd be waiting in the, in the driveway, waiting for him to get home with a football for him to take me to the park. Or I was lucky enough to have a couple of uncles uh, and a few cousins who also love sport, who every opportunity, if I wasn't with my mates, I'd be going to, going to practice with them. So the next couple of years was obviously, uh, the next year was pro- uh, grade six primary school and, and went through and made the, the Vic primary school team where I got a chance to play with Gary Ablett Jr., Wow. Um, Luke Ball, um, Adam and Troy Salwood, which is Joel's older two twin brothers. Um, so I went through there, and then that's where you sort of start to think, oh, this is this is all right. And you got to travel every every weekend. We were driving down to Melbourne um, for for football and back back and forth from Melbourne to the college. Which, as as a kid in Melbourne, you didn't do that. Sorry, as a kid in the country, you didn't do that too often. It was too long of a journey with with the roads back then. It would take three or four hours to get to Melbourne, yeah, um, wow. especially, especially in peak hour. So you, you'd drive down three hours to, to watch a 120-minute game of football and then by the time you got out of the G to drive home, it'd be another three, four-hour trip back. So it was a, it was a long, long journey just to go down and, and watch sport. But um, yeah, from then, and then you sort of started making the, the, um, the under-15s and 16s and, and sort of followed from there. And did it mean you had to give up all those other sports or did you just keep playing those sports in the off-seasons and things like that? And- you know, keep the hand-eye skills going. No, um, I'm a big, uh, big believer, especially now that the more sports you play as a kid, the you'll be able to bring them into the, the sport that you love. Like you look at Scotty Penderbury or Jared Ruffhead with basketball, um, their agility, their hand-eye coordination for, for especially Ruffy, who's six foot five, 
um, for what he can do at ground level, not many other tall blokes can do that. And that's has to be because of the, what he was doing at basketball. Um, sideways movement, pick up the ball, the, the crossovers, that kind of stuff. Um, so I, I kept playing that. I played cricket pretty much all the way up until I was 16, 17. Um, played basketball pretty much until I got drafted and even went back after when I did get drafted I went back and kept playing cricket in Colac even though the club didn't know about it weren't too happy with it but I, I, <laughs> it, was a, it was a good way for me to sort of stay connected with with mates and, and friends back in Colac. Yeah I think that's a great takeaway Luke in that you know we see it in golf at this at, at early ages where you know parents are potentially thinking they want their kids to be the next Tiger Woods and they're driving these kids so at such a young age just into one sport and I agree with you I think that it's so important from a developmental perspective of all your skills uh, because you're not always going to make it either, you know, so yep. if you pigeonhole yourself into one space. Um, so I think that's a great takeaway. That's, that's really cool. So uh, talk us through, you know, how did it happen? How did AFL become a reality for you from a draft perspective and, and being number one draft pick in 2001? Talk us through that experience and, and, and then moving into 2002 when you were obviously at the Hawks. Yeah, it, uh, it went pretty quickly. As you said, when you're a kid, it, it sort of flies. Um, it doesn't feel like that when you're at school, but when you're, when you're doing something yeah. you love with, with sport. Um, so I was lucky enough to go through and um, made the under-15s, Vic side, and under-16s. And then coming into my draft year, I was bottom age. I had osteopubis, which apparently every footballer through the early 2000s suffered from osteopubis, which is pretty much just groin. Uh, groin stress, which any any time you change direction or, or you kick a football, you get sharp pains in your groin. Um, so I I played the first played the international series at under 17s in April, and then I played one or two games with the Falcons and pretty much sat out my whole year. Um, so that was tough when you when you're 16 years old, um, you're getting touted that you're going to get drafted at the end of that year um, to miss. I think I missed 14 games. I got back for the last game of the season, then played a couple finals. Um, so I spent I spent all of 2001 wow. wondering what, what what can I do trying to find stuff where all I did from a kid from when I was five or six years of age was play sport run round all of a sudden I get told I, I can't run um, you can't go for a kick you can't go and play basketball um, you can't play cricket it's, and you know it's like kids kids don't want to be told what they can't do they want Mate, to be told what they can do so I'm like that now what's that I'm like that now <laughs> still <laughs> yeah. But uh, but going back there, so that's that, that was a that was a tough two thousand one was it was a tough year. Um, but in in saying that, I, I did a fair bit with the prior couple of years of of um, playing, putting on good performances when I sort of had to in the, in the state game. So I got to the end of the year, played a couple of good games, and uh, all of a sudden there was there was talk about the draft and and who's going to be there. Hawthorne um, made a couple of trades. Um, they got out one of their favourite sons, Trent Crowe, sent him to Freeman, so they got pick one and. Then there was a, a two-month discussion on who they're going to take is going to be Judd, Ball, or myself. Um, and coming from Colac, it's like, well, it's obviously going to be Ball or Juddy, and I'll, <laughs> I'll go wherever I have to. Um, I'll, I'll be happy to play anywhere. Even though I was a Richmond supporter, I would have travelled to Perth. I would have went to Sydney. I would have went, would have went anywhere to, to play AFL. Um, but all, all, through that, Juddy had a couple of shoulder recos um, playing against 16, 17-year-olds, and there was a bit of a doubt on his shoulders. Um, mm. How's he going to handle tackling Michael Voss? How's he going to go if he comes up against Nathan Buckley? These blokes that are 100 kilo midfielders that are just huge and, and just got muscles on muscles. So there started to be a bit of a doubt there. Uh, there was doubt on me because of my groins, but um, they were pretty confident there was only like a, a 12-month thing. And, and Luke Ball, very 
Um, very smart bloke, Luke Ball. I think he got 98 in his, in his enter score. Um, and Luke Ball and myself were both in year 11. Um, so Luke had sort of said that he's going to continue at Xavier and, and finish off year 12. Schooling wasn't a strong point of mine, which I wish I had paid more attention to it. I, I guarantee <laughs> that I was, um, was going to play footy next year, no matter, no matter what I did. So, yeah, it, it, after two months of sort of back and forth and you had to go to Melbourne for, for tests on your groins and get scans and it was pretty much just a, a fortnightly thing. You'd be going down talking to one team, talking to another and, and finally the draft come and, and Hawthorne, Hawthorne chose me. It's, uh, it must have been an exciting day, you know, to... Um to then be able to look at Hawthorne, who's in the side, who am I going to be rubbing shoulders up against as an 18-year-old, 17, 18-year-old, and then I guess the nervous wait as 2002 rolls around. What was it like, A, going into the club and starting training with an AFL club? How different was that from what you'd been experiencing? And that wait for your first game, which I think was round five that year as a debut. Yeah, it was, um, it was weird. You got drafted and you think, oh, what now? You sort of don't know. We went up for the draft. We went back to Colac. Um, they gave me a couple of days to pack all my stuff. And, and I got down on, I think, the Wednesday. Because I was, I was an avid uh, Richmond supporter. So I didn't really know many of the, the Hawthorne yeah. players. Um, obviously, you'd know Shane Crawford and, and Ben Dixon and uh, Johnny Barker and Jonathan Hay and all these blokes who sort of made all the strains or, or sort of made a name for himself. But there were so many guys there that, because I'd never watched Hawthorne games, I sort of didn't really know. So... Um, it was nerve-wracking going in, not really knowing, knowing anyone. And a lot of blokes who got drafted um, that year. Sam Mitchell, he was an Eastern Rangers boy. Um, Campbell Brown was Colter Cannons. Daniel Alstone was New South Wales. Rick Ladson was Bendigo. And I knew Laddo because I'd played some footy with him, but um, didn't really know anyone else there. So it was, it was daunting leaving, leaving as a 17-year-old. Didn't have my licence. Um, <laughs> Didn't know how I was going to get around in, in Melbourne, but Hawthorne, <laughs> Hawthorne, were, really, Hawthorne were, were, were really good. They, uh, they put Rick Ladson and Dan Alstone, myself, they put us in a, with a family home. Um, Dan was the only one who had his licence because me and Rick were still 17. So it was, um, it was, a, it was a learning curve and, and something that it didn't, I, I didn't enjoy it straight up. Yeah. Yeah. And leaving home as, at that age, you know, just... Challenging in itself, isn't it? Going from Colac to the Big Smoke. Where, where were you living? What did they do? Put you up somewhere? Or yeah, we went to Glen Iris with with Rick and Rick and Dan um, Alstone. So we uh, we pretty much just were in there for for nine or ten months until Rick and myself got our license and Dan moved out. Um, but it was weird because I, the club made me go back and do Year Twelve, but it was like a part time. So I was going to a Swinburne Uni with people who would left school. Um, and it was sort of weird. Someone had left school to work on a car and realised that they needed education. And um, another one who'd come back from given, having birth with a kid and all that. So there was sort of a lot of people from different walks of yeah, life right. meeting up. And it was, I think it was a six to a nine on a Wednesday and six to a nine on a Thursday. And I was a okay. seven-year-old kid just trying to understand the training loads. So I'd yeah. be falling asleep in class. And, and then <laughs> if I had the opportunity not to go, I wouldn't go. So... Um, as I said, if I had more time again, I would have put more time and effort into, into my study. But as a 17-year-old kid, you don't know what you don't know. Um, and at the time, it was all about playing football and, and um, yeah, and, and spending time with the guys. And, and, and I can imagine just every day getting up, you know, if there was school on, well, I just want to get through this and get the footy, you know. <laughs> yeah, try, it was one of those ones where you'd, you'd love to get to train them, but it was more so to, to hang out with the kind of guys. So once you got to know them and, 
and realise what they've done in their careers and and trying to spend time with them. That, that's what a 17 year you just want to you want to play AFL football and you want to follow what the guys uh, in your team are doing. And it was I was enjoying that side of it, but also on on the same thing as a 17 year old, you want to spend time with with your mates. Mm. Um, and then your mates on a weekend that we got we got training on Saturday morning and and training on Sunday. My mates will be having their 18th or they'll be having their parties or you'll be talking to them on a Monday and, and finding out what they did on, on the weekends back in Colac. And, and that was something that really, really tore me. Um, wanting to go back to Colac. So every weekend, as soon as we finished training, I would, when I, once I had my license, I'd jump in the car and drive straight back. So um, professionally and, and what you know now, you, you probably shouldn't be going back and, and catching up with your mates because normally that, that turns into a few beers and probably not eating the right foods as well. Um, but that was... That was a 17-year-old missing what all these other mates were going to do. But um, you realise that you've got to make sacrifices if, if you want to play a professional sport. And that was something that I had to do. Yeah, those sacrifices are something that, um, you know, everybody's faced with, aren't they? So, you know, did it ever get to a point where you ever contemplated, you know, this is too hard? Uh, yeah, my, fir- my first three years, um, it, was, it was a roller. Foot- football's a roller co- coaster anyway because... From one week to the next, of winning to losing to getting a kick to not getting a kick, um, you have ups and downs, and it's important to have people around you that just keep you level, whether you're going good or bad. Um, my first three years was was weird, just because I had a lot of injuries. Um, I'd come in with the groin issues, and then um, end up playing 15, 15 games in my first year. Went into the second year, come back with a stress fracture in my in my left foot. Then the next year, I had a stress fracture in my right foot, so I couldn't really get continuity in my training. Uh, I was playing games, but I wasn't fit. I uh, wasn't really having an impact. wasn't playing great football. But on the flip side of that is you get the, the media. Because um, mm. obviously by that stage, 2002 was when the media started ramp, ramping up. You had your talkback radio. You had your footy shows. You had all this stuff where you weren't used to in the past. Um, and all it was was there was comparisons with Hodge taking number one and Judd taking number three. I'd played 45 games and done bugger all really um playing <laughs> a little bit forward a little a little bit back injury prone Juddy won a brown on his third year so <laughs> it's sort of gone out that he uh i think he played 22 games in his first year mate won the bnf <clears throat> won the brown low um he won a flag in his 2006 played in a grand final in 2005 won a grand final in 2006 uh by this stage i'm i'm slowly just starting to get continuity in training and playing senior football and i think it I think a lot of it came down to physically I was ready to play footy, but mentally, emotionally, professionally, I wasn't at the AFL level where being in Melbourne, he had a lot of people who taught him the rights and wrongs of football, what to eat, what to drink, how to recover, uh, weights to do, how to be professional. I'd come as a 17-year-old raw kid who did not know or probably didn't rate that high enough um, to, to do it as, as well as what I needed to. And, and that was just a learning curve of a, of a young 17, 18, 19-year-old kid just want to play footy, not putting in the work behind the scenes to, to make sure you, you perform on, on game day. Interesting um, little chat there, Luke. Let's let's look at what it was like when you were there back then, 2002, those first few years, versus Luke Hodge going to the Lions in the last two years of your career and thinking about the young guys that are coming in through the drafts and stuff. What is the... What is, you know, and I'm not talking Lions versus Hawthorne here. I'm talking era versus era. Yeah. And, and and what's different now about how you guys maybe have a mentor program? I don't know. I'm just spitballing here. But is it different now? Uh, it, it's definitely different. The fact that 
when when, when <laughs> I first got drafted, it was you got to earn your stripes, and that was just the culture of football. You come in, you you, you get respect from your your teammates when you're seem to be training hard, when you're seem to be playing football, when you can prove that you're at their stage, their level with with um with the game. Uh, and if you're not, you shut up and you do work until you can prove that you're good enough to be playing AFL AFL standard. Where right now is, I'll use Bradley Hill as an example. Um, Bradley Hill, who came in from Fremantle, um, a very shy, uh, young, indigenous bloke, but was just bubbly and infectious uh, in how, how everything you did. If you want to go and, if you want to put a smile on your face, you go and talk to Hilly for half an hour because you'll come back and you'll be cackling because he's just one of those blokes. Yeah. If he had been, if he'd have been drafted in 2001, there's no way that they would have got the best out of, of Bradley Hill um, because it's like, Prove your point. You talk when you're spoken to. Where when he got drafted, I think it was the end of 2011. The culture changed that much. As every time if someone flew in, so Hilly would fly when he flew in, landed Melbourne Airport. One of the senior guys would go and pick him up, bring him back. He'd stay at their house, and it was almost like a mate. I'm going to teach you the rights and wrongs about AFL. This is what you do. This is what you don't do. This is what you eat. This is how you do weights. This is how you recover. Um, almost like a big more, brother program. Yeah, yeah, it is, and it's. The, the mindset was, is if you make a bloke feel comfortable, he's going to perform better rather than make him go through the hard yards and, and what the football was back then. It was you treat them well, you, you, you treat them that they're a part of the group and the more that they feel a part of the group, the better they're going to perform, the more that they're going to come out of themselves to, to make him make himself, I guess, enjoy the footy club and, and I guess, catch up with his mates outside and, and feel welcome. And, and I think that's how footy changed. It, it changed from proving the point to, hey, bring him in, give him a call and say, mate, this is what you're going to do. And some blokes like that and, and get the best out of him. And some blokes say, footy's not for me and, and we'll leave pretty quickly. But um, that's probably the best example I can think of of bringing someone in who's a young, shy guy and then three years later played in three flags and, and yeah. now one of the most elite, energetic, upbeat wingers that I've, that I've ever seen play the game. Did you have to, you know, take on that bit of a... Was that part of the responsibility when you did come to the Lions? And I know we'll talk about that a little bit later, but um, was that part of your responsibility when you came to the Lions? Was Fakes, you know, um, the coach wanting you to take over or take that type of role on? It was, it was sort of weird. The reason why I was up there is Fakes was a big one that Brisbane had a, a stage there where it was five years of a lot of the guys went home. Yeah, mm. went back to the West Coast. Uh, Pollock went to um, to Port Adelaide. Doherty went to Carlton. There's a few others that I think that are, that I think left Lockie at the Henderson. same time. Lockie went went to Carlton. Um, at the same time, Rocky was about to leave um, to go to Port Adelaide. Mm. So he, he his mindset was because they had that core of 24 to 28, 29 year olds. Who they're the, they're the guys who teach the younger guys coming through. They teach him professionalism and, and they, they've got to follow him. So he, he was just sort of saying that he can teach him throughout the week at training, but when when young blokes need the feedback, and it, which is most important, is on game day, when they do something right, when they do something wrong, who can explain it to them? So in their mind, they know in that situation whether it was a good decision or a bad decision and what to do next time. He said he, he had a very few senior blokes who were able to do that. So mm. um, that was a role coming up. Um, be there as a sounding board for the leadership group because a lot of the stuff that they're they're about to go through, I'd probably been through considering I'd, I'd been in a leadership group at Hawthorne for ten or twelve years. Um, but and that, I think that was pretty much it. It was it was a sounding board for the other players and, and trying to teach them uh, the standards that we lived through at Hawthorne to help us succeed. And uh, and that was like how how blokes caught on when you got blokes competitive there with, with Zorko, uh, Harris Andrews, you got young blokes with Jared Berry, 
um, Hugh McCluggage, and then you get in a Lockie, Lockie now. It's like they, they picked it up pretty quickly, and, mm. and now they're the ones who you can sort of see driving your standards and, and pushing these young blokes and, and, and teaching them. Yeah, it's awesome. They've got a, uh, an exciting future should we get some footy back on the, on the fields again, hopefully, post this yeah. coronavirus. <laughs> but um, it's kind of weird sitting here in, in May and, and not really seeing any footy. Um, that's for sure. And let's, it's let's, a weird time. It's a weird time. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. Let's rewind now back into, as you were talking about there, um, and the Hawks touching on a little bit of the Hawks there, let's rewind back into something that I read um, about the Hawks and a trip to Kokoda. Um, yep. let's, let's chat a little bit about that. I'm fascinated by this. Um, obviously, the Kokoda Trail up in New Guinea and where our, our you know, um, Aussie troops went up and, you know, the history books will tell you about that story and how horrific it was for them, but what a stand they put up. So let's dive into that a little bit as far as what, um, why did your coaching staff decide to take the Hawks up to the Kokoda Trail? Yeah, so it was a time where Alistair Clarkson was appointed. Um, we'd had three years where the year before I got to Hawthorne, they made a prelim final. They sent Trent Crowe over to Perth, got a new draft in. Uh, and then missed finals for the next three years. Um, Swabby, who was coach then, got sacked with about five games to go. And, uh, yeah, so Alistair Clarkson was brought in and, and not many people had, had heard. They knew it, obviously, he played at North Melbourne and played at Melbourne. Um, but he went over to Adelaide, did all his apprenticeship over in Adelaide and then um, and then was assistant coach at Port Adelaide when they when they won the flag in 2004. So we um, he, he wanted to take the guys over to see what they were made of. He, um, Football to get drafted, you almost got to you're almost an individual athlete in a team sport to get drafted because yes, you care if you win or lose, but the whole thing through junior footy for a young guy is playing AFL. So you've got to yeah. impress individually to to get I guess noticed by the scouts and and get and get picked up. So he wanted to see with the guys um, where their mindset was at when things got tough and in games of football when your back's against the wall late in the game, are you going to do the team first things or are you going to be, you're going to be selfish and try and get a kick yourself? And I think that's where, that's where he'll find out that in Kokoda. Um, so we went across there and it was all about grind. Just grinding. It's making us tired, making us emotional. Um, is that too loud? There's a bloke with a chainsaw in the backyard. <laughs> We got a chainsaw. We can't do much about that. So you know, uh, we, to all our listeners out there, just bear with us. The, yeah, I think Hodgkin's trees are going to come down. <laughs> no, nah, this is a part of this is a part of catching up in in COVID nineteen. We don't really get a chance to jump in the studio and and be face to face and and have the sound perfect. So um, my listeners will understand, and they just want to hear the rest of this story. So go on, but, mate. Um, yeah. So so going to a Kokoda, it was waking us up at. at Three o'clock in the morning, digging a hole, digging a trench. It yeah, was man. walking. So, so Kokoda, I went back and did, I went back and did Kokoda uh, in 2015, I think it was. And we did that over eight days. And even then, it was still fatigued. You're walking up and down. It's a 95 kilometre walk up and down hills. So you get to one, you get to the peak of one, one mountain, and then you realise you've got to go further down and up high for the next one. And, and we did that in five days. Um, so you're getting up, you're leaving at six. Yeah, you get in at six. You go into a bit of a, a river where you'd, you'd have a wash, um, hmm. and then you'd have dinner and sit in a group, and then go to bed. And then someone would wake up at four o'clock to dig a trench. Then you'd go back to bed. Um, 
it was just about making it uncomfortable for all the players. At the, at the same time, understanding what the um, what the guys went through back when they had to, to trek it during the war. Um, so we were getting books to read. Um, they were telling us at this stage what happened that their bullets are flying at them while they're carrying their mates up and back. Yeah, wow. Over, over all the over over these mountains where. So we got to day one, I think it was, and they decided to um, bring out these big logs. So they, they were like telephone poles. And all the mindset was, was you've got your 20 kilo pack, you're carrying these logs as a group. So if one person's not pulling his weight, you don't really know, but you're not helping your teammates because they've got to carry more weight. Extra. So it's just like a game of football. If you're not pulling your weight in a game of football, you're going to hurt your teammate because he's going to have to do extra. So small little stuff like that. Mm. Another, day, another day, you broke off into, into sixes. They made up stretches. So, no, sorry, they broke up into eight. And, yeah, you had your 20-kilo CERN bags on there. So, if you can carry one of your troops out. Um, so, then we'd have to walk up and down these mountains with four blokes, four blokes carrying it, two of them up there spotting, telling them where the rocks are. Be careful here. Um, everything you did was about working in a team um, in discomfort. You're tired, you're emotional. Who's going to go inside himself or who's going to help each other out? And the first, the first part I saw was um, was Harry Miller, uh, war number 14. He was an 18-year-old kid who just got drafted and he was struggling. I think it was about day two or three. Every time we'd have to step up, because we, what we did is we had 20-kilo backpacks and you've got to take with all your stuff in it. They had a 20-kilo sandbag that we sat on top of the pack. So you carried 40 kilos. And Harry was going up these steps, and each step was probably about a foot, a foot and a half high. So he was just able to get his foot up and then and then push himself to get the next step. And he was really struggling. And I remember Trent Crowe, who had, we'd traded back. He went to Fremantle for two years, and we ended up getting him back at the end of 2004. Um, he grabbed Harry's pack, put it on his shoulders. So he's now got his 20-kilo sand pack. He's got Harry's 20-kilo sand pack, plus his own backpack. He's got 60 kilos on his back. And then he started pushing Harry up with his hand. <laughs> and, and I remember sitting back now, you, get, you think back. And I remember thinking then going, that's what he's talking about. Crowd is obviously struggling, but he saw a teammate struggling. He took, the, he took a 20-kilo pack, put it on his and started pushing him up the mountain. Um, and I think that's what, that's what he wanted to get out of it. So by the end of the week, we realised, yes, you might be a good individual. You might be a good athlete. You might be individually skilled, but you're going to get nowhere without your teammates. And, uh, and from that, that's where we started to think everything we had to do was about Yes, I might be able to do it, but can my teammate do it? How can I make my teammate better so then he can help us on game day? Yeah, it's unbelievable, isn't it? And and it obviously worked. So, you know, from your perspective, looking at the process and seeing those things take place, it obviously had the desired effect. Yeah, it did. And there were small other other little things, like the discipline side of things with Parco was something that stood out. If someone wore the wrong socks, the whole team would be down. Uh, the beach the next day at 5 a.m. If someone rocked up late, he wouldn't he wouldn't punish the individual because he goes, it's not about if someone makes a mistake on game day, it's not the individual yeah. that gets punished. It's the team as a collective. So when everyone made a mistake, there was uh, 44 blokes down the beach. And trust me, it's not like Brisbane. If you're, uh, if you're down the beach in <laughs> July in, uh, in Melbourne, see, the waters are probably about four degrees. Um, you're jumping off, you're swimming in. Um, but it was, it was his way of saying that if someone's late, then you ring up and call. Uh, to make sure they're not late again. There was a, uh, there was a good one with Zach Dawson. He rocked up late for training. So he goes, Clarko didn't spray him. He said, no, that's, that's fine. Everyone tomorrow, you meet down at six o'clock at the beach. You'll do a swim, a bit of recovery, and then go from there, and go from there to, into training. We all get down there at six o'clock the next day. 
Everyone's there. We did a check. Zach Dawson wasn't there. He slept in. So he's like, <laughs> and then he, he ended up getting there late. But he didn't sprain, didn't go angry. He goes, hey, guys, Zach obviously slept in, uh, didn't get here. We're going to be down here at 5 o'clock tomorrow morning again. But wouldn't, wouldn't abuse him. What he was trying to teach him once again is if Zach sleeps in, why? Why didn't someone call him? Yeah. So, so from then, we made up that Harry Miller was 14, Nick Reese was 16. If I woke up, I'd send a text. I'd send one to Harry, send one to Nick and make sure that they replied back. So you're looking at a number above you, a number below you sure. to make sure that, you're, that everyone's going to be there. So it was another way that they used to sort of teach you to look out for your teammate. It's not so much you getting there on time, it's making sure that the bloke either side of you gets there as well. So, Luke, it's awesome to, I mean, it's one of the parts of, of golf, I think, I suppose, that, you know, I miss the most about when I play golf as, as a sport, you know, you're on your own and it's you. And when I was lucky enough to play a couple of seasons in the QAFL up here in 2002-3, I loved the team part of it. I just absolutely yeah. thrived on having your mates and, you know, training together and playing games and, you know, dealing with whether it's success or failure together. But um, what's it like when you suffered an injury uh, and you, you did your knee, so you posterior cruciate ligament? Um I assume then your team gathers around you as well. Yeah, it was. It's it's sort of weird. They they do as much as they can to to support you and be around you, but you're isolated. You're in your own group with the rehab guys who aren't training. You might have to get there early. You do your standing skills. You watch them train, and then they go do the recovery while you've got to go and do an extra extra circuit or something to to stay fit. Um, but that's that's the thing. Whenever you whenever you see blokes get injured, you always see other blokes go up to them and. And behind the scenes is more importantly because mm. straight straight away it's important to get around it. But it's three weeks later when a lot of the teams have moved on and they've the media have forgotten about you because you're irrelevant now because you're not playing. That's when your teammates it's most important to, to support them then. Yeah. Um, and, and what my probably longest stretch out was 2012 when I hurt my PCL. Um, I think I did it round round five and missed 11 or 12 weeks. Um, and, and, and it was tough. It was, it was frustrating. Um, and you, you doubt yourself. Because um, I was told initially it was going to be a three-week PCL. And then mm. turned into a five and then a ten. And then it just wasn't recovering the way we thought. As soon as I'd run, I'd get more fluid, more swelling, have to pull it back again. Um, and I remember Mike Sheen. Mike Sheen wrote an article. I know. He said it on, on the couch uh, on, a, on a program. I do it on Monday nights. He said, I don't think Hodge is going to come back. He said he's put his body through too much. Because um, back then, when I was younger, I was in midfield. I was cash and bash, put your body on the line, um, and there was big doubt saying whether I could get back from this knee injury because there was setback after setback. Um, and you sort of believe that yourself when everyone starts saying it. You sort of start to believe it yourself, thinking, "Is this true? Am I ever going to get back to, to what I was or what I what I did used to do?" Um, but Adam Simpson, uh, who was a coach and who played training games in North Melbourne, who's now coaching West Coast. I remember talking to him and he said that when you get to when he got to 30, he lost a kilo every year because it made his body feel better and you're obviously not as flexible. Um, you don't recover as well as when you're young. But he found that he lost a kilo every year after 30 and it made him just stay on top of his game. So I was only 28 at that stage, um, started to do that uh, and, and felt a lot better. And every kilo from 2003, 2013, 14, 15, I was coming back in weight. Uh, mm. and, and made myself feel a lot better and I could still perform 
even though I was playing a different role across our back, I could still sort of perform how, how I used to. So the challenges of injuries are very, very real, as you just discussed there. And, you know, you have some doubts and, you know, um, media throws some doubts in your mind as well, obviously, along that journey. What's harder, uh, an injury like that or a loss of form where you start doubting as well? Um, I think a loss of form, it's only there for a little bit. And as long as you've got the right mindset, it's like, well, there's other things you can do on a game of football than kicks, marks, handballs, um, which unfortunately, because of today's with Supercoach and that, sure. people only care if you, yeah. if you take a mark. Or, um, But what, what I found across half-back is you didn't have to have the ball to have an impact. And whether mm. that was talking to your teammates, whether that was setting blokes up, whether that was a spoil or a shepherd or running to create opportunity to free someone else up, it was all the other stuff without the ball, which... I learned throughout my career and, and what I was taught as a leader was was just as important as getting the ball. If you're making space for a teammate so he gets a kick, well, who really cares whether you get the kick or he gets the kick? It's as long as your team's got possession and, and you're moving forward. Um, so that's that's one thing is I think injuries a lot, lot harder because you're out of the game. You can't really impact on field, which that's what you're there for. Uh, a loss of form is mm. only temporarily. You know, it's, a, it's, it's not going to be a long time. Um, and there's other things you can do to still have an impact. Mm. I think one of the things as a Brisbane Lions fan I noticed the most is, you know, obviously I love the game and love watching it. and You know, I probably, you know, obviously I know of Luke Hodge when I'm watching and you know, when the Lions are playing the Hawks is the one, you know, one of the guys that we want to try and keep pretty quiet. But when I when you came to the Lions, I remember sitting in the Gabba one night watching as you guys were playing the Swans and you had a handy lead, but it was this night where, whichever direction you ran, that was the goal scoring end. And, and we didn't have that in our favour in the fourth quarter. The Swans were coming hard at you. And, and um, I remember standing there up there with, in the stands with my, my sons, my two boys, and saying, have a look at Podgy here. And you weren't doing much with the football, but you were standing, you had your arms out, you're directing the troops in the back. And I remember thinking, wow, this is exactly why they got in here to help teach these young guys at the lines and, and, and the old head on the shoulders. And I'll never forget it, that, you know, you influenced that game of footy without the football. Yeah, I think one of, one of my strengths as a player was never running. Um, it was never agility. <laughs> it was never speed. It was never, I couldn't cover long distance. But um, I mean, because I've watched so much footy and I would, as a kid, I'd watch as much, as much football as I could. I'd go to games, even if I wasn't playing, and just watch football. So... I think the more you give yourself to the game, the more you understand it. And I think that was something that sort of come naturally. I could understand um, what teams are doing, what they were going to do from behind the footy, which, which sort of helped. Um, and I think this goes back to what I sort of said. If, if I don't have the ball, and it wasn't my role the last two years, if the ball come to me, all good and well, but it wasn't my role to get it. When you got blokes like Daniel Rich down there, Alex Withered, and these blokes who were great kicks to the footy, um, it's almost as an older bloke to get the hell out of the road and just let those, those guys play football. If I can... If I can position them into a, if I can put them in a position to either get the ball or to, to intercept the ball, then then that was that was my role. And if I could teach those guys to do it naturally, um, then oh, that was a, that was a tick the box rather than getting as much of the footy uh, as as I could. So I guess it, it comes down to your role and what you got to do for your team. And it was pretty clear from from Fades that that was that was my role: teach the young guys um, and just try and help them with their understanding of the game as well. And an incredibly uh, resilient last couple of years too. You know, when you think about how many games you played for the Lions over those last couple of years at the back end of your career, 
Um, I think you sort of were 19, 22 or something like that in the last couple of years of your, your footballing career when you feel like you might be ageing. There's plenty of talk in the media that you're ageing. <laughs> yeah. um, I, I was definitely ageing. Um, <laughs> I, I think that's what I learned. And I'm a, you, you make a lot of mistakes throughout your life. You make a lot of mistakes sure. throughout your, your sporting career. But the biggest thing is learn from those mistakes. Yeah. Uh, or learn from situations. And, and my biggest learning curve was that injury in 2012 where didn't know whether I could get back and play, got back. But what I, what I realised was, well, I guess that's your body's a temple. You've got to make sure you treat as best you could. And, and I went from being reasonably unprofessional um, and, and probably not, not doing the, the, the right things as far as recovery and, and um, doing everything I had to, um, to all of a sudden, I was, I was stretching, I was doing the yoga, I, was, I, was, I went and got a bloke who the, the club had at the time who would work on my body three times a week. Um, just to make sure that I was I was recovered well, but ready to go for, to perform. Uh, and what I learned my last five years, if I wasn't doing that stuff, I probably would have finished football in 2015, 2016. But because of what I'd been taught, what I'd learned, and I guess I was disciplined enough to make sure um, that I stuck to that. I, I still, when I came up here, I flew the bloke up four or five times. Yeah, wow. Um, just, to, just to make sure, because there was at times where your body doesn't feel great. Uh, and he knew, because he treated me since 2012, he knew exactly, if by watching me run, by stretching, by looking at this and that, he knew exactly what was wrong and, and how to fix me. So, um, oh, oh, pe- people sort of said, are you surprised that you got through so many games late? And I, I wasn't surprised. If I had an injury, if I had a, had an injury, that happens in football, but there's no way I would have taken the deal to come up here if I didn't think I could get through two more years of football. If I had been playing on ball midfield the whole time, I probably would have struggled through pace, through how the game, how you got to cover ground now in um, mm. today's game as a midfielder, but sitting across half back, go when you have to, but also you've got a lot of time to recover. I was, I was really confident that I could get through that. Um, but in saying that, if I'd have done a knee in the first two weeks, probably would have been a fair backfire and things probably would have got abused, but we're lucky that didn't happen. <laughs> Did you ever think about more than the two years at the end of that, coming to the end of the two years when you were still feeling okay? Did you think about another year? Um, it must be hard to retire, uh, right? Yes and no. Uh, I, I knew when I was at Hawthorne, even though I hung up the boots and said, no, I'd, I'd had enough. That was because of where the list was at. Hawthorne weren't going to win a flag in the next two or three years while I was there. Uh, I was a 33-year-old. They had Sicily, they had Ryan Burton, they had Hardwick. Um, at the same time, they had virtual um, James Frawley and Stratton, who were all becoming leaders of that footy club. And, and having a 33-year-old there was just clogging a spot from a young guy coming through and developing his game. So I knew that was the right time. But in, internally, I, I still felt like I wanted to play football. I still felt mm. like I could and, and almost I needed to. Um, yep. when, I hung, when I hung up the boots last year, I was, I was content. Uh, we just had our, we had our fourth, fourth boy in December. And I thought, I want to spend time up here. Um, yes, they'll be a part of the footy club, but I want to spend time with them uh, while, while I'm still young and agile enough to, to spend time with them. And, and I, was, I was content with, with the, how things ended. I would have loved to play but I made two more two more games of footy. Yeah, um, absolutely. <laughs> but but that's 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 how footy is, and, and hopefully I can sit back and, and help still help these young guys develop. The experience of um, just quickly, we'll touch on this. Just the experience of playing finals footy at the Gabba with a full Gabba versus uh, somewhere like the G and a full G. What's the you know? There's a bit of there's a bit of talk around that it's noisy at the Gabba. It's well, it's it, it feels so close because the MCG is so spread out and the 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 stands up. But in saying that, when you've got a hundred thousand people yeah. on the final day cheering, uh, the the loudest roar I've 
heard of the MCG wasn't when I was playing for Hawthorne. It was the 2016 Grand Final. I was commentating um, Sydney against Western Bulldogs. Western Bulldogs hadn't won a flag for oh, 16 years. And I felt for the Sydney people because if you barrack for Sydney, they were the only people who were barracking for Sydney on, at, the, at the ground. So there's probably 25, 30,000 Sydney supporters. Whether you barrack for Bulldogs, Richmond, Hawthorne, <laughs> everyone else was barracking for the doggies. Um, and when they re- when they ran out, there were 70,000 people just erupted and were just cheering. And that was the loudest I've ever, ever heard the MCG. Yeah, wow. But the, the Gabbers, the Gabba, the, I think it was round three this year, last year, sorry, uh, when Hippie kicked four in the second half and, and put Adelaide up and we ended up coming back. Because um, 98% of the crowd was the Lions, it was, the atmosphere was outstanding. Uh, and then to kick a couple of goals late to win the, to, to win the game, I, I don't think I've ever heard the Gabo as loud as, as what we did that night. It was, everyone was going ballistic. Hippie was playing well. The boys had a good comeback uh, and a great win. But it's, it's a deafening crowd when they get so many people, especially with, when it's a Collingwood, you're probably 50-50 Lions, Collingwood or... Yeah. When it's Richmond, it's 50-50. Sure. But when you've, got a, when you've got an interstate team that hasn't got the history of those clubs, tell you what, you can hear the Lions supporters. I tell you what, my neighbours heard this, this Lions supporter when, when Link McCarthy took that absolute specky <laughs> and, and kicked a goal for us to win late that, that uh, game last year. It was unbelievable. I, I, I think that's, a, that's the special things about football that, um, that you still enjoy, whether you're playing or you're watching. Yeah. You know, Link McCarthy, who he'd probably go down, in, he's probably one of the best blokes in AFL football. Yeah, just wow. a, a likable, a genuine guy, a country boy, just a ripping fella. He had, I think he played 28 games for Geelong in eight years, maybe? Seven yeah, or eight years. it's incredible. He comes, to, he comes to the Lions and plays, I think he played 22, or he might have played them all, might have played 24 games this year in one, in one year. And then from the take a hanger, kick the winning goal against his former team. Um, yeah, you can sort of <laughs> say he was pretty fun with himself after that. It's amazing to... to you know, just have you on this chat for, you know, 45 minutes an hour here and think about where we started talking about you as an 11-year-old being in the grandstand listening to that 60,000, you know, strong crowd at the G singing in Richmond, you know, the Richmond song and making that decision that you wanted to play footy to now, you know, you know, transporting yourself into 2019 and, and you know, talking about a time when you're standing in the middle of a gabba when, hippies kicking goals and the buzz and now you're on the other side of the fence you're actually you know do you ever pinch yourself and think wow what a, what a ride I had um it was actually we spoke about it yesterday um we were uh, it was obviously Mother's Day we were um we were sitting in the backyard having a picnic with all the boys um and I said the loss I said who would have thought three years ago we'll be sitting in a backyard in yeah. Queensland um <laughs> considering I was always my mindset if Hawthorne was the only team I'd ever play for um but yeah, I guess things things change, and it's uh, it's been a hell of a ride. But um, something that I've I've been grateful, but very lucky that uh, I've been able to enjoy it and still be part of it. But still been to be able to be coaching, commentating, staying in the game. Um, football's I think all sports. Um, yeah, you get that attached to it. I don't think you can leave it. And football's definitely that for me. And and that's um, you know we we haven't really touched on the captaincy and winning premierships as a captain and and what captaincy was and maybe we'll have to just leave that for another time on the hard yards when you come back in season two next year maybe but um, you know I'll be fascinated to talk a little bit about that and the difficulties of all the challenges of being a captain and and a captain of your club but also ultimately lifting premiership trophies but what is it what does the future look like for Luke Hodge now you're obviously still involved with the Lions you've um, you've told me you're never leaving Brisbane ever again 
Um, <laughs> and your four boys are going to play for the Lions. That's outstanding. <laughs> what does um, the future look like, mate? First priority is working my short game in golf. Yes. Uh, <laughs> no, I've, uh, I think that was one of the ones. Moving to Brisbane was... I played golf occasionally in Melbourne, but for four months of the year, it's, it's too cold to play golf. And I, was, sure. and I couldn't play. I had a bad slice from a, due to cricket. Um, but coming up here, I thought the only way I could sort of, I was six, seven years older than most of the guys. Golf was a way that found me to mix with the guys. So every Wednesday, I'd go out and play with three different guys and, and turn in. I got the golf bug and, and you now did. I'm obsessed with it. Got, now I'm obsessed. But uh, as far as that, we're, I guess we're, we're busy with, with, the four boys, um, Coop's 11, Chase is seven, Leo's four, and Tanner's almost five months. Um, so, yeah, we'll be up here for, for a while, uh, I think. And I've, I've been doing some some part-time development stuff with the Lions. Really enjoyed that as far as still staying with the camaraderie of, yeah. of, of football, even though I'm not playing. Um, and then I'm, I'm, I'm doing some commentary as well with seven, which which I've really enjoyed. And I guess you sort of see it from a different different aspect when, you, when you're not pulling on the boots. Um, but... But, uh, yeah, it's keeping us busy. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, mate, thank you very much for joining me um, today and spending a little bit of the, your, your time, um, downtime. Uh, you've got out of looking after the kids for an hour anyway, mate. So <laughs> I've, an hour, I've got out of, hour of homeschooling, so thank you very much. <laughs> mind you, mind you, as uh, my listeners don't know this, but in the last week, you know, Hodgie just brought each, each day of the week, I think he brought one of his kids down to Golf Central so he could... You know, uh, hit some golf balls himself, and he was well, doing the right thing. So, <laughs> well, my wife actually told me to go to golf center. It was, it was a reward for the kids who did home, who did all their work. So I was able to take them out one day at a week, and my wife was actually telling me to go and play golf. I couldn't believe it. You had to twist your arm, didn't she, mate? You know, right <laughs> round behind your back to get you out the think, door. Mate, the minute she said go to the golf, you straight mate, out the th- door. Things you've got to do as a parent. <laughs> That's exactly right. Well, mate, um, I look forward to seeing you back down at Golf Central. I'm sure we'll catch up plenty of times throughout the year and um, and certainly wish you all the best for the Lions. Uh, if and when the footy season gets back on deck and your commentary, you're an absolute legend of the game. You're a legend of a fella as well. And I appreciate your time today, Luke. Cheers, buddy. Thanks, mate. Luke Hodge, what a dead set legend and a champion. I can't thank him enough for giving me some of his time to hopefully encourage you wherever you are along your journey. Next week, we delve into the world of rugby union in what promises to be a fascinating chat. Until then, no matter where you are or what you're doing, don't forget to put in the hard yards.